Section 21 of Reminiscences and Table Talk of Samuel Rogers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I was one day not a little surprised at being told by Moore that in consequence of the article on his poems in the Edinburgh Review, he had called out Geoffrey, who at that time was in London. He asked me to lend him a pair of pistols, I said, and truly, that I had none. Moore then went to William Spencer to borrow pistols, and to talk to him about the duel, and Spencer, who was delighted with this confidence, did not fail to blab the matter to Lord Fincastle, and also, I believe, to some women of rank. I was at Spencer's house in the forenoon, anxious to learn the issue of the duel, when a messenger arrived with the tidings that moore and geoffrey were in custody and with the request from moore that spencer would bail him spencer did not seem much inclined to do so remarking that he could not well go out for it was already twelve o'clock and he had to be dressed by four so i went to bow street and bailed moore the question now was whether moore and geoffrey should still fight or not I secretly consulted General Fitzpatrick, who gave it as his decided opinion that Mr. Jeffrey was not called upon to accept a second challenge, insinuating, of course, that Moore was bound to send one. I took care not to divulge what the General had said, and the poet and the critic were eventually reconciled by means of Horner and myself. They shook hands with each other in the garden behind my house. So heartily has Moore repented of having published Little's poems that I have seen him shed tears, tears of deep contrition, when we were talking of them. Young ladies read his Lala Rook without being aware, I presume, of the grossness of the veiled prophet. These lines by Mr. Snade are amusing enough. Lala Rook is a naughty book by Tommy Moore, who has written four, each warmer than the former, so the most recent is the least decent. Moore borrowed from me Lord Thurlow's poems, and forthwith wrote that ill-natured article on them in the Edinburgh Review. It made me angry, for Lord Thurlow, with all his eccentricity, was a man of genius, but the public chose to laugh at him and Moore, who always follows the world's opinion, of course did so too. I like Lord Thurlow's verses on Sydney. Moore once said to me, I am much fonder of reading works in prose than in verse. I replied I should have known so from your writings, and I meant the words as a compliment. His best poems are quite original. Moore is a very worthy man, but not a little improvident. His excellent wife contrives to maintain the whole family on a guinea a week, and he, when in London, thinks nothing of drawing away that sum weekly on hackney coaches and gloves. I said to him, you must have made ten thousand pounds by your musical publications. He replied, more than that. 
In short, he has received for his various works nearly £30,000. When, owing to the state of his affairs, he found it necessary to retire for a while, I advised him to make Holywood House his refuge. There he could have lived cheaply and comfortably, with permission to walk about unmolested every Sunday, when he might have dined with Walter Scott or Geoffrey. But he would go to Paris, and there he spent about a thousand a year. At the time when Moore was struggling with his grief for the loss of his children, he said to me, What a wonderful man that Shakespeare is! How perfectly I now feel the truth of his words, and if I laugh at any mortal thing, tis that I may not weep. I happened to repeat to Mrs. N. what Moore had said, upon which she observed, well, The passage is not Shakespeare's, but Byron's. And sure enough, we found it in Don Juan. Another lady who was present, having declared that she did not understand it, I said, I will give you an illustration of it. A friend of mine was chiding his daughter. She laughed. Now, continued the father, you make matters worse by laughing. She then burst into tears, exclaiming, If I do not laugh, I must cry. Moore has now taken to an amusement which is very well suited to the fifth act of life. He plays cribbage every night with Mrs. Moore. In the memoir of Carey by his son, Coleridge is said to have first become acquainted with Carey's Dante when he met the translator at Littlehampton. But that is a mistake. Moore mentioned the work to me with great admiration, I mentioned it to Wordsworth, and he to Coleridge, who had never heard of it till then, and who forthwith read it. On the resignation of Baber, chief librarian at the British Museum, I wrote a letter to the Archbishop of Canterbury, urging Carey's claim to fill the vacant place. The Archbishop replied that his only reason for not giving Carey his vote was the unfortunate circumstance of Carey's having been more than once in consequence of domestic calamities, afflicted with temporary alienation of mind. I had quite forgotten this, and I immediately wrote again to the Archbishop, saying I now agreed with him concerning Carey's unfitness for the situation. I also, as delicately as I could, touched on the subject to Carey himself, telling him that the place was not suited for him. After another gentleman had been appointed Baber's succession, the trustees of the museum recommended Carey to the government for a pension, which they seem resolved not to grant, and I made more than one earnest application to them in his behalf. At last Lord Melbourne sent Lord E. to me with a message that there was very little money to dispose of, but that Carey should have one hundred pounds per annum. I replied that it was so small a sum that I did not choose to mention the offer to Carey, and that as soon as Sir Robert Peel came into office I should apply to him for a larger sum, with confident hopes of better success. Lord Melbourne then let me know that Carey should have £200 a year, which I accepted for him.
Carey never forgave me for my conduct in the museum business, and never afterwards called upon me. But I met him one day in the park, when he said much to his credit, considering his decided political opinions, that he was better pleased to receive two hundred pounds a year from Lord Melbourne than double the sum from Sir Robert Peel. Visiting Lady Blank one day, I made inquiries about her sister. She is now staying with me, answered Lady Blank, but she is unwell in consequence of a fright which she got on her way from Richmond to London. At that time, omnibuses were great rarities, and while Miss was coming to town, the footman, observing an omnibus approach, and thinking that she might like to see it, suddenly called in at the carriage window, Ma'am, the omnibus! Miss Blank, being unacquainted with the term, and not sure but that an omnibus might be a wild beast escaped from the zoological gardens, was thrown into a dreadful state of agitation by the announcement. Words cannot do justice to Theodore Hook's talent for improvisation. It was perfectly wonderful. He was one day sitting at the pianoforte, singing an extempore song as fluently as if he had had the words and music before him, when Moore happened to look into the room, and Hook instantly introduced a long parenthesis. And here's Mr. Moore peeping in at the door, etc. The last time I saw Hook was in the lobby of Lord Canterbury's house after a large evening party there. He was walking up and down, singing with great gravity, to the astonishment of the footman, Shepherds, I have lost my hat. When Erskine was made Lord Chancellor, Lady Holland never rested till she prevailed upon him to give Sidney Smith a living. Smith went to thank him for the appointment. Ah, oh, said Erskine, don't thank me, Mr. Smith. I gave you the living because Lady Holland insisted on my doing so. And if she had desired me to give it to the devil, he must have had it. At one time, when I gave a dinner, I used to have candles placed all round the dining-room, and high up, in order to show off the pictures. I asked Smith how he liked that plan. Not at all, he replied. Above there is a blaze of light, and below nothing but darkness and gnashing of teeth. He said that Blank was so fond of contradiction that he would throw up the window in the middle of the night and contradict the watchman who was calling the hour. When his physician advised him to take a walk upon an empty stomach, Smith asked, Upon whose? Lady Cork, said Smith, was once so moved by a charity sermon that she begged me to lend her a guinea for her contribution. I did so. She never repaid me, and spent it on herself. He said that his idea of heaven was eating foie gras to the sound of trumpets. I had a very odd dream last night, said he. I dreamed that there were thirty-nine muses and nine articles, and my head is still quite confused about them. 
Smith said, The Bishop of Blank is so like Judas that I now firmly believe in the apostolical succession. Witty as Smith was, I have seen him at my own house absolutely overpowered by the superior facetiousness of William Banks. End of section 21